One of the bummers of modern life is the difficulty we often have bridging cultural gaps. Sometimes it feels like we have distinct communities around various aspects of life, whether it's public radio or NASCAR, and there are fewer chances for the communities to understand each other. But there is at least one activity that seems to give people in our region a common language, fishing. My son takes me fishing. I drive to the site, but he's the one who knows where we're going. And when we run into people on the river, no one cares who you voted for or whether you prefer hockey or football. They just want to know what you're using as bait. Today on Northwards, three segments that get at who we are. A museum exhibit explaining why people of all sorts are inspired by the Adirondacks. A novel that explores the cultural gap between rural and urban America in the 21st century. And why this is a great place to fish. Northwards is next from North Country Public Radio. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. Laura Rice has worked at the Adirondack Experience in Blue Mountain Lake for 20 years, longer than the museum has been called the Adirondack Experience. In those two decades, tens of thousands of people have come through the doors and seen many of the unique and distinctive art and artifacts that tell the story of the region. But until now, visitors have never been able to see the museum's collection put into a context that truly connects the diverse objects and paintings. A brand new permanent exhibit seeks to open visitors' eyes and give them a new understanding about why the Adirondacks have been so important to so many people from different walks of life. The exhibit is called Artists and Inspiration in the Wild, and Laura Rice, who is the chief curator at the Adirondack Experience, met us there recently to share the story of the exhibit. Thanks so much for having us out to visit. Well, thank you for coming to have a chat. So let's tell the story of this exhibit. Uh, Where was the genesis for it? And what was the initial vision that you were hoping to fill when, you know, when this was all new and uh, and just a gleam in your eye? So we, we started with the gleam um, many years ago now, it seems like. Um, so it's been in the works for a long time. We knew we had this incredible collection that we really wanted to be able to have out, at least with a, a core group of really great stuff all the time. And we really didn't have that before we renovated this building. The other thing that we really wanted to do, because most people think of us as a history museum, not an art museum, was to um, make the art maybe a little more accessible to people who weren't necessarily coming here to see art. People who thought it was boring or maybe they were a little intimidated by it. You know, sometimes you feel like you have to know all this stuff about it in order to understand what you're looking at or to appreciate, which isn't true. It's like a different level of interpretation people believe there has to be. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, we really wanted to engage with this idea of creativity and the fact that the environment, the landscape of the Adirondacks has just been this huge well of inspiration for creative people through millennia. Well, and so why was it that the that you were never able until this point to have a core group of artifacts and pieces that were always on display? We had a much smaller changing exhibition gallery. And, um, you know, I think we had a a lot of fun with that. I think we did some great things. 
but you know, if, if the Tates weren't out, we'd hear, well, where, where's the work by you know, A.F. Tate? How come I can't see this? Um, and we really felt that as, as the collection was growing, that it was just such a small space for what we had. Um, and you know, these things are meant to be seen. So we needed a, a real dedicated space to really pull it out. This must be one of the inherent challenges of curators around the world is choosing which of these these precious artifacts uh, can be on display at any one time. It must be like choosing which is your favorite child. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> and, and, and actually, it was a little intimidating for us at the beginning because you look at this wonderful body of work, but it's like, okay, so what do we do with all of this? How do we make this something that's interesting and cohesive and digestible and engaging? You know, what's what's the story that we're going to tell? And we didn't want to just set things up in chronological order. Um, you know, the, the really interesting thing about this collection is that it's so diverse, and you have this beautiful landscape painting from the 1870s next to a beautiful landscape painting from, uh, the, you know, the 2000 teens, and you see all these wonderful things happening, the similarities and the differences and the continuity and the changes, and even looking at, at things that are as different as a Mohawk fancy basket next to a 19th century oil painting has something to say, and it's just these really interesting layers that you can get into. And so when, when you start to plan for an exhibit like this, what does the planning process look like? Oh, geez. Well, it starts with staff. You know, we kind of noodle around for a little bit about several approaches that we can take. Um, in this case, we called in um, an advisory group of art history scholars to help us. We've also talked to members of the Mohawk community. Um, a lot of different people became involved. And so then you get into things like, what do we do with the building? And how much is this gonna cost? And yada, yada, <laughs> yada. And it's really a cast of hundreds of people that wind up being involved from architects to engineers to exhibit designers, media designers, designers in addition to staff. So well, it's a process. And, and, and so where does the visitor experience come in? Do you have to do you have to envision this from, you know, here's what I imagine uh, my visitors are going to think about when they walk in the door and this is what I want them to to think about as they come out the other side? Yeah, we, um, we have an interpretation department and their specialty is really um, um, sort of honing in on that visitor experience. And, and so we do testing. There's testing as we're developing the concept. There's prototype testing. And then there's uh, what we call uh, sort of the final testing that's going on right now. And that's getting feedback from members of the public, sometimes even our own families, <laughs> you know, people who are... are totally unfamiliar with the collection and with what we're trying to do and that's hugely helpful. In some ways it's it's finding people, it sounds like it's finding people who can see the trees for the forest. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> because as curators, you know, you become so immersed in all of this, you lose sight of what's common knowledge and what isn't and what makes sense and what doesn't. So even after we had labels written, we gave them to people that didn't know anything about the project to make sure that they made sense. So as you took this from an idea to its fruition and decided again 
against organizing it all in chronological order. Talk about the way that it ended up becoming organized, because that's really one of the unique aspects of this exhibit. Yeah, we, we thought about, um, so light, water, forest, and mountains are kind of the classical art historian elements of the landscape, but it's also the way that a lot of people talk about being in the Adirondacks. You know, what is it that you like about being here? What appeals to you? Well, it's climbing a mountain and watching the sunrise over this forest that just rolls away from you, or it's, you know, sitting on the beach and watching the light reflect off the water. Um, so it sort of comes down to that same language, and we wanted people to be able to connect their own experience with what these artists were doing and thinking. I mean, artists are a little different, they're wired differently, and they have this ability to translate images in their head into something for the rest of us to see and enjoy, but at root, it's that connection with nature here that's that common thread. In doing that, I, I gather people have different expectations for a museum experience today than they did 20 and 30 years ago. What was the challenge in organizing this, not only in those four general areas, but in such a way that people can have that interactive experience that they expect from a museum today? Well, we recognized early on that um, First of all, art is something that appeals to kids. I mean, you know, every kid likes to color. Every kid's into creativity. We lose that, I think, a lot of us as we grow up. But we also know from a practical standpoint, if there's nothing for the kids to do, the families are not going to come in or they're not going to spend as much time in the gallery as they would otherwise. And the other thing is that art is such a tactile process. You know, when you're talking about creativity, it's about putting your hands on clay or, you know, even paint on canvas has a very tactile aspect to it. So we wanted to draw on that. We wanted to give people a chance to exercise a little of their own creativity. Um, and appeal to families and people of all ages. Talk about how this exhibit fits into everything that you have done through your career. How does it okay. how does it stack up as a <laughs> as a challenge compared to the the various other things that you've worked on? Well, I have a background more as a history curator. I'm not an art historian, but I was the lead on content for this, which was an interesting challenge. And I think maybe in some cases I've come at this in a slightly different way than a trained um, art historian would. Um, so that was kind of a challenge for me, but it was also one of the most rewarding because I think for me, what makes art interesting is the context in which it was created. What was going on in that painter's life when he created this landscape? You know, who was he selling to? Who was he trying to satisfy when he was painting this thing? Um, so there's so much associated with that, so many really rich stories about who these artists were and the world in which they were working that um, I had a great time. It was a great project to work on. Does the artist in you have to come out? I mean, I, I think about the the parallel here that the, the artist might start something with a story in his mind or her mind and have this blank canvas in front of them and you had this blank building to start with. Is there something of an artist in, in, in being an effective curator? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, it's a very creative process, laying things out, which work goes where and what do you put this next to and how do those stories relate and then just the act of writing the stories. I mean, it's a very creative thing to do. You're basically telling a story. And um, so I guess you could call that creative writing based in fact, but you know, still creative writing. I, was there a point in this? And, and as you say, there were lots of people that had to work together to, to bring this entire exhibit to fruition. But was there a point in the process where the thing that is a few doors from us right now came into your mind and looked the way it does today? Or, or does that not happen until, you know, the last painting is on the wall? Um, in some ways it does, and in some ways it doesn't. Um, you know, we, we work now with these fancy computer programs where you literally can see what a wall is going to look like, but it's not really until everything is in there that you really can see the work. You know, you look at them in storage and it's fluorescent lighting and it's terrible, and, uh, but you get them out and suddenly these things have a life that you didn't necessarily see while you were working on the project. So it's a, it was a little of both. How important is this exhibit in the history of the ADKX? I mean, this is a museum that has been around for a long time. You know, how would you, I guess, how would you put the, the, this, this new experience in context? I think it is important for us. I think it's a slightly new way of looking at this collection. Um, it's been well cared for and well curated over the years. Um, you know, Caroline Welsh, a past curator, did an amazing job in developing this collection. Um, but I think what's really exciting is just being able to present it in a new light and to plan on presenting things in new lights. I mean, the great thing about this exhibit is that we can move things around. We're going to be introducing new material over and over again so it's a permanent exhibit but it's not static and um, yeah I, I think that's that's why it's so important there's also if I remember correctly there's also a workshop that uh, you're letting people uh, take advantage of yes and this was really fun so we wanted a space where people could sit down and get their creative juices flowing and actually make something, make something to take home. Uh, gives us a space where we can have workshops, we can have artists come and do demonstrations. Um, you can make a mess in there and it won't make any difference. Um, Just not something you can always say at a museum. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but So we worked with Barney Bellinger, who's um, an Adirondack rustic maker and now a sculptor and photographer. He's just this amazingly creative person. And uh, after visiting his studio several times, we thought, this is what we need because it's so inspiring to be in an artist's studio and see all these inspiring things. And so we worked with him and he brought some of the stuff from his stockpile of raw materials and helped us decorate. And uh, yeah, it's a great space. The, the name of the exhibit is Artists and Inspirations in the Wild. Inspiration seems to be maybe the overlooked word that uh, that that people might not think of when they get here. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's something that we all have. It's that spark, whatever it is. And we all express it in very different ways, which is also one of the neat things about having the art like this. All of it's so different and it speaks to the individuality of the personality behind it. 
you've been working on this for how many years? Oh, geez. <laughs> when did we start this? We started out with an exhibition master plan that kind of looked at the whole campus, and that was back in 2013, 2014. So that's when we started to think about it. Um, this project probably got underway, I'd say, 2018 or so. Interrupted a bit by the, by the pandemic, but yeah. You know, I've talked to talked to writers about this and, and filmmakers about this and musicians about this, like the amount of work that goes into it. Is there a letdown after it's open and the people are there and it becomes routine? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I know I got back to my office after it was all over and I kind of stared at my desk and went, OK, now what? <laughs> you know, I mean, I had plenty, but it was just getting out of that sense of rhythm or that mode, you know, and, and moving on to other things. And sometimes it's a little sad, you know, because it's such a great project. And, but but if nothing else, you can always walk out there and watch people enjoy it. Yes, yes, and that part's been really gratifying. We've been really, really pleased. Laura Rice is chief curator at the Adirondack Experience in Blue Mountain Lake. She spoke with us on site at the museum's major new exhibit, Artists and Inspiration in the Wild, which opened earlier this month. You can see photos, find links, and get a special digital tour of at least one of the objects in the exhibit at ncpr.org slash northwards. Stay tuned, we'll take a quick break, and when we return, we'll revisit novelist Idra Novi's latest book, one set in a place that feels maybe uncomfortably like the North Country. This is Northwards from NCPR. Northwards is supported by Brewer Bookstore on Park Street in Canton. Open to the public Monday through Saturday, featuring books, household items, and gifts. BrewerBookstore.com and by The Book Nook, an independent bookstore located on Broadway in Saranac Lake, on Facebook at SL Book Nook. And by Claxton Hepburn Medical Center and its surgical services team performing robotic, general, and minimally invasive procedures, ClaxtonHepburn.org. From NCPR, it's Northwards. I'm Mitch Tyke. If you're in a book club in the North Country, keep your eyes open for Idra Novi's recent novel, Take What You Need. Its setting will seem immediately familiar to you, maybe uncomfortably so. And you'll want to talk about it. It's a place where hospitals are closing, the housing stock is old and crumbling at its foundations, and the politics are polarized. It is not, however, a town in the North Country, but in a likewise post-industrial part of the Rust Belt, western Pennsylvania. It's where Novi grew up before she left, in much the same way one of her novel's two protagonists left. As the book opens, we meet Leah, who has moved away, but is returning to her hometown where her estranged stepmother has just passed away. Throughout the course of the book, we learn about Leah's complicated relationship with her stepmother, Jean, and we learn about Jean's complicated relationship with the town in which she spent her whole life. And we learn about the unique metalwork sculptures which Jean spends the last part of her life creating. It is a thought-provoking book, and Idra Novi joined us on the line to talk about it. Welcome to Northwards. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to talk with you about the book. So I think people here in the North Country of Northern New York will recognize the place, or at least the feel of the place, where this novel plays out. But can you paint a picture of the city of Sevlik for us? So Sevlik is a fictional sort of declining former steel town in Western Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up. 
And I wanted to sort of create a fictional town so I could pool on the town where my grandparents lived and the town where my mother grew up and the town where I grew up and talk about, you know, the closing of, um, you know, rural hospitals and, you know, people who stay and people who go and um, things that I've sort of experienced coming back and forth over the course of my life. Um, and I thought I would be freer if I created this fictional town that is clearly, you know, in the Rust Belts that is part of the Southern Allegheny Mountains of Appalachia, but also gave me sort of creative freedom to invent this town of my own, which I think there's a you know long tradition of doing that. John Updike invented his town, you know, like Garcia Marquez invented his town. So it seemed like something I understood why, what's the appeal of having a very concrete physical sense of a place and yet wanting to locate the characters in a fictional town. Well, and, and do you think it distanced you at least a little emotionally from the from the actual places that you grew up or your grandparents were from or your parents were from? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there was even something freeing where I would see this ramp that I remember driving down in my town. And I remember what, you know, what people call the house flowers, which is where former outhouses used to be along the roadside. Like I could see everything there. I could see the chicken wing place. I could see all of it. But by naming the street a new name, it did sort of release the scene to be something that wasn't beholden to my experiences. There, there might be a tendency for an author either to look back overly romantically at the place where they grew up or uh, or really kind of look down on it. And so did you feel like you were trying to to strike a balance between the place where you grew up and and being fair to it as fiction? You know, I think it's a great question. And I think that this book took me a long time to write. I started it before my last novel. And um, I think I just wasn't ready, maybe because of the era we were living in. And I started doing a lot of interviews. I actually thought I was going to write a nonfiction book. And I sat down with people I went to high school with. I sat down with them in bars. My brother is a waiter at a restaurant in my hometown. So I went while he was waiting tables and I talked with people in the restaurant, many of whom I grew up with. I talked um, with neighbors and I was really asking them questions about sort of political polarization in the town, how it had touched their lives, whether it had estranged them from friends or even their own children, which is what the novel is about. And those conversations were really moving. And I realized how much I was holding back and how much people I was talking about holding back. And if I hadn't had the occasion of the novel, I, I wouldn't have had those conversations. And that was when I was like, no, I'm a novelist. And that I wanted to take those moments and, and make them more concentrated in, in one relationship. So that I think was how the novel came to be. Cause I think a lot of the conversations and moments came from hearing other people talk about how painful it is to be estranged from, you know, family members and these misunderstandings um, that sort of erode this trust between people who have different outlooks. So I think that was why when I was writing the novel, I, I it wasn't just my outlook. It was these long sort of tender conversations that I'd had with people I'd known all my life. When you sat down to write the, the novel that became Take What You Need, were there particular abiding questions that you were trying to explore and you know were there personal questions or bigger questions about where we are as a country in 2023 or, or can you really separate the two I think this book really took off for me once I figured out it was a fairy tale I mean the fairy tales kind of folded mm -hmm. up inside it because I think to try and write about political polarization to imagine that the novel might speak to people across cultural divides that feels like a fairy tale <laughs> 
And so I think that's why it had to be a fairy tale. And I think once I gave myself permission to imagine that people, you know, the novel might speak to people across divides and that the characters might reconnect across their divides and be able to be in the same room, that all of that felt so charged that once I was like, okay, this is in the realm of fairy tales. It's in, it's in, it's in the realm of a fable beyond our moment. And, and then it felt like I knew my, my way into it was through this sort of realm of, of um, conjured, conjured lives. Well, and, and because it's a fairy tale, um, one of your two characters that this story is told through is, of course, a stepmother, and, and that is Jean. It's also written from the point of view of Leah, who grew up in Sevlik and, and has tried to make a clean break from her earlier life. Um, what is it that, that Leah has really tried to leave behind? Leah's character, you know, she's a little younger than I am. I can see her as a millennial, which I am not a millennial, slightly older than that. <laughs> um, but I think that what I do relate to about Leah's experiences going back is that from where I live and I go back, it's like the seven hour drive and there's more land and more open sky and the roads narrow. And there's this sense of, um, you know, these particles of this place that sort of do sort of come back into your spirit when you go back to this place that you know deep in your body and you, you know how it smells and how it tastes. And that really came from my life, you know, and in and, and the contrast that she, she that don't come up in the novel, but you know, like when I go, when I go back home, there's bittersweet. It grows along the riverbank of the Connemaw where I biked as a kid and where I bike with my own children now when I go home. And then I come back to Brooklyn and Bittersweet is selling in Union Square Market for $30 a bundle. You know, <laughs> there are these ways that I like inhabit these polarized realities, you know, of like where things, you know, are free and nobody cares and where things are like overpriced and just ridiculous. And so, and so I, I, I think I wanted to write about how I can inhabit these two different realities and relate to these two different realities. And that's the place where Leah struggles, I think, is um, how can she be true to herself in both places? Wait, was there ever a point where you thought you yourself were making a clean break and that, that you would never have yeah. to live in these two realities? You know, when I left after college, as, as Leah does in the novel, she she moves to Peru, but I moved to Chile. It was very much, I didn't even, I didn't even want to be in the English language. Like I lived for a long time in Chile. I translate a lot of books from Portuguese and Spanish. I really felt this need for sort of um, just to annihilate that sort of rural early self. Um, it felt inadequate. It felt like something that had never really quite fit. Um, and then as the older I got, I realized that you can't really ever annihilate that self and that that false attempt is actually really um, leads to sort of turmoil and I think is artistically limiting. And so I think when I started doing these long interviews and getting a sort of more adult, more mature sense of reconnecting to these people who I hadn't spoken to in years, I realized that, you know, I come from this place. It's part of my character. It's part of the art that I make. And what in there do I want to celebrate as Jean does in her art? I played in the woods as a kid. I think that that freedom I found, we made these elaborate imaginative games in the woods. And I've talked to other artists from Appalachia who also played in the woods with these long days. And, and you know, I, I, I think that I'm like more open with distance to seeing the beauty of parts of my childhood, which doesn't mean I don't see them alongside the despair I feel about how things are going politically in the area where I grew up. 
Well, and and so you've mentioned art a few times, and uh, we should we should talk about what we're talking about. Uh, over the course of the novel, um, we learn that Jean assumed that she would leave Western Pennsylvania behind earlier in his, her life uh, to pursue her art, presumably. Um, although she's stayed rooted in place, her connection to art remained a constant. And as we get to know her, she's building or really welding these metal towers inside her little house, these things she calls these these manglements. Uh, without giving too much away, what can you tell us about what drives her to, to create? You know, I, I opened the book, which is on the first place, with this quote I found from Louise Bourgeois about how, you know, what you can't accept about your past if you can't, you become a sculptor. And I think that's certainly true for me as a novelist. You know, I'm sculpting stories that are about things I can't accept, you know? Um, and I think maybe when I was younger, it was more sort of thinking about things that I can't accept in others. And now it's more about things I can't accept both in others and in myself and where, where that collision happens. And also things that probably I'll never figure out. And I think that when you have that ambivalence, when you sort of the art sort of is you're able to inhabit that uncertainty in a novel that that's when the story really um, opens up and you can allow it to sort of surprise you and let the characters surprise you. Well, so so do you think I mean, do you do you write as a way to to try to figure stuff out? Yeah, I think with all the novels, I, I, I think all the novels what they have in common, they're about sort of cultural dissidents, you know, or feeling sort of a little at odds with multiple places or living in several languages. They're all about, you know, characters who sort of inhabit more than one language. And so to write about this bilingual family is sort of heading back to Western Pennsylvania. I mean, I've certainly, that's, that is, that is from life, you know, like I, I know what it's like to speak Spanish with, you know, kids in a small, you know, Allegheny mountain town and upstate New York and, you know, and, and it's, and it's changing all the time, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's surprising how often, you know, we'll go into a place where when I was a child, the chance of being able to speak Spanish in in my hometown wouldn't happen. And now it's more and more likely, which, and I love that, you know, it it, it feels like my kids feel at home and I feel at home and, you know, my husband feels at home and I, and I love seeing seeing that change happen, you know, the, um, but I think for writing this novel, it was very much a question of how can I look at these two places I inhabit and see them in a new light? both of them. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and what, what is, what art are we overlooking and by whom? And I think that was the question for that really sort of became like the fire in this novel, like whose art are we dismissing and why are we dismissing it? And you think about it, there, there is, there is a lot of um, what, you know, some would term folk art uh, that's being created in small rural places. And, you know, I wonder if we do it a, disservice by by labeling it folk art in a different way than we would label anything else as just art. Yeah, I think a lot of those labels are um, often demeaning. I think that they're sort of silos for, mm -hmm. and, and maybe it does have to do with how we see, even like the divide between sort of like nationally recognized art or regional art, I think they're sort of false. And I think there is something really beautiful about making art about and where you live, you know, that is with the material where you live and what's been discarded where you live. And um, I think we do sort of relegate art and, and, and to, to sort of these labels that's a disservice because sometimes the art that is the most rooted to where it was made has a sort of granular vitality to it that you wouldn't find in art that's trying to thrive on 
Instagram. Like art that is great on Instagram may not be great to behold in person. And maybe that art that, you know, is is not being seen, but somebody's just deep into where they are. Maybe that is the art that when you behold it in person comes alive for you in a way that things that look great on Instagram don't. <laughs> this is a strange question. Uh, so bear with me. Uh, and perhaps, you know, he is not here to answer this question, but maybe you can, you can give us a little insight. Um, well, what's your husband's attitude towards your hometown in uh, in Western Pennsylvania? You know, I think we've both had an about face about our trips back there. And um, he doesn't go back nearly as often as I do. Where he grew up in Chile, we sort of have a thing in common where um, we both grew up playing in the woods. And so even though we grew up in really different countries, you know, he he grew up playing in the Andes in the woods. But in some ways, I think we really both had like similarly wild childhoods in nature. And so he loves going back and biking there. I think we love, you know, going back with our kids and 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 being and seeing nobody. You can walk for miles and see no one. So I think he appreciates the, that that about it. Um, I think he's enjoyed meeting the artists in my hometown who, like some of his family friends during the Pinochet dictatorship, we're also sort of doing things off the grid that no one knew about. So in a way, he grew up in a polarized country. There were either a Pinochet exporter or you weren't. And so I think some of the polarization here to him is something he's already lived through. And so I think when he sees people living in places where they sort of maybe are quietly doing radical things, that that does feel familiar. How well did you have to know what the what the the pieces of art that Gene was making would look like for you to be able to credibly describe them in this book? That's a great question. The the spoon capsules that she right. makes were based on something that my welding teacher, the metal artist Julia Murray, had made, and she walked me through it. And um, for the the coffin and all <laughs> that Gene built. Um, when I was meeting with Norm Ed, who's a um, metal artist, mixed media artist in, in 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 Johnstown, in my hometown, he had had he he had metal, and we we also he also walked me through it. And he himself had built his built a coffin, not out of wood, and he was using it as a bookshelf. So it was so fascinating <laughs> that I had imagined an artist in that area wanting to make a coffin. Hers is a vertical coffin, you know, and he had a vertical coffin that he as an artist in the town had made. And so there was a number of times where this book, where it was sort of like the art I imagined sort of collided with life and these really unexpected and often um, sort of uh, alarming ways. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you chose the wrong art field. I know. I have thought of this. I have thought of this. It has occurred to me as well. Yes. I Many days where I'm like, you know, trying to get the words together for another novel, but, you know, I'll, I'll be like, wouldn't it just be more fun to torch it? <laughs> uh, well, Idranovi, I am glad you did not torch this novel. Uh, it's uh, it's <laughs> terrific as, uh, as, all your, uh, as all your work has been. I'm so grateful uh, that you shared it with us. Thank you, and thank you for your thoughtful questions. It was great to have this conversation with you, my first about the book. Idranovi's latest novel is called Take What You Need, and it came out this spring. She's also author of Ways to Disappear and Those Who Knew, and we reached her in Brooklyn back in February. One more break, and then we'll explore what makes upstate New York such a great place to fish. This is Northwards, coming to you from North Country Public Radio. 
Northridge is supported by Planned Parenthood, providing confidential counseling, education, advocacy, and a 24-hour hotline through their Sexual Assault Services Program in Clinton, Essex, and Franklin Counties. And by Renew Architecture and Design, offering custom design services from the St. Lawrence River Valley to the Adirondacks. More at renewarchitecture.com. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio. More of Northwards now coming to you from the studios of North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. I recently took up fishing again after a short break of maybe about 40 years. Mostly it was my son's influence, but being in a place like the North Country played a big role as well. We have a lot of fishermen and fisherwomen around the region catching fish in rivers and streams in rural St. Lawrence County and Adirondack Ponds and even in Lake Ontario and Champlain. But it's not just folks from our region. Actually, the North Country is a magnet for fishermen, especially bass fishermen. In fact, the current issue of Bassmaster Magazine rates the St. Lawrence River as the number two best place for bass fishing in the country. Lake Champlain makes the top 100 list as well, as do a couple of places just to the south, Oneida and Cayuga Lake, and hey, Lake Erie as well. What makes not just a good place, but a great place to fish? And why do so many places in our region make the grade? James Hall is here to tell us. He is the editor-in-chief of Bassmaster, and he is on the line from Birmingham, Alabama. James, thanks so much for making the time. Oh, man, it's a, it's a pleasure and honor for me to be here with you guys. Well, so let's start with the two fisheries from what we think of here as the North Country, northern New York, to make this list. Uh, the St. Lawrence River has been at or near the top pretty consistently over the years. What makes it such a great place in a national context versus everywhere else in the country someone could fish? Well, I tell you, man, the, the St. Lawrence River, there's uh, something special in the water there, and best I can figure. So, so y'all are sprinkling magic <laughs> in that in that particular fishery because it has, you're right, perennial, uh, it's been a perennial powerhouse as far as the rankings go. Um, and and the this last year, it just illustrated is the best smallmouth fishery in the world, bar none, and there may not even be a second place as far as the St. Lawrence River and smallmouth go. Um, the water, the water there is fertile. Um, the bass just keep getting bigger. You know, we had that event up there uh, last year, our last event of the year, less than twelve months ago, where we had two anglers uh, top the one hundred pound mark over four days, which was the, actually it had never been done before. You know, there had never been an angler on the Elite Series catch over 100 pounds of smallmouth in one event. And then the St. Lawrence produced two of those in the same event. Uh, so that is, you know, it was historic. And um, and, it, and it appears that the St. Lawrence is just getting better. Well, and so tell us about the data you use. I mean, you mentioned uh, what it took to uh, to win the Elite Series last year in the St. Lawrence. But what what's the what's the sum total of the data you use to create this list, and and how do you pull it all together over the year? Yeah, um, it's painful. You know, like <laughs> I, I mentioned, it's I have a love hate relationship with this thing because when we're putting together the hundred best bass lakes list, uh, the rankings, it takes about two months in total, almost three. Because what we do first of all is we survey all the fisheries departments of every uh, of every state in the nation. Now some of them uh, participate, some of them don't, and they give us kind of the foundation to begin the process. So once they rank, they say you know they do electrofish surveys. They're the ones that stock these fisheries, 
Um, they're the ones that set the creole limits and the seasons for you guys up north. So having them kind of set the foundation of ranking their own lakes based on their knowledge of it is a really, really good foundation for us. Uh, but then we go in, once we kind of get their information, we go in and look at um, at tournament data. Uh, both, uh, like at every tournament trail you can imagine, and, and there are tens of thousands of them out there. You know, we got like Paw Paw's uh, Sunday morning derby on, you know, the the Lake Mitchell and Randy. So, so we go through a ton of tournament data, and that does take a long time. And it will either um, help solidify and elevate the information that we get from the uh, from the state fisheries departments or it will say well you know it's not quite as good as they thought it was you know just based on the data so and we also have um what we call what we what, it's kind of our grassroots um uh, efforts throughout the u.s called the bass nation and these are fishermen who, who are in every state in the nation they fish just about every pond out there and there's just tens of thousands of these guys that are just avid and rabid and each has a, a president and a conservation director. So we pull all these guys throughout the country as well and have them rank the, the lakes that they fish in case there's something that might have slipped through the cracks. So when we kind of get it all down, we, we, we collect our, all that data, get our arms around it. Uh, we kind of put it down on paper, throw it in the spreadsheet, and we start looking at the, the average tournament weights that's taken to catch, and then the big fish, and then how close are the tournaments? Because if one derby is one with 30 pounds and the next 10 guys have three pounds. Well, then it kind of lets you know that that was just, that was kind of, <laughs> kind of a one-off. And so we try to avoid the one by ranking highly these one-offs because every lake can show out every now and again, but um, we get a blue ribbon panel of uh, industry insiders, you know, some elite series anglers, some folks in the industry that have fished for forever, some people in my office. And then we just debate where these lakes are going to fall on the rankings and then once that debate is over and hopefully no blood has been shed <laughs> then, uh, then we, we settle on the list and publish it well and we should get a definition out of the way too you talk about the best bass lakes but obviously when we're talking about the saint lawrence river here you're you're taking some liberties with the idea of a lake these are really bass fisheries we're talking about that is correct it's just not as it's not as catchy one of the best bass fisheries it uh, yeah, that's right. There's there's um, there's lakes, there's man-made, you know, there's uh, tidal uh, fisheries in here as well. So yeah, it's all it's just the best the best uh, bass fisheries uh, in the U.S. But we we throw them all under the lakes name. Well, and 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 you were saying this, um, you know, th this is obviously a national magazine with with thousands of subscribers, and uh, potentially lots of them might travel a few hours or even more to fish. So I would assume that accessibility also figures into this top hundred list. It does, yeah, accessibility. So whenever we reach out to the conservation directors of the Bass Nation that I mentioned earlier, we um, we make sure that the accessibility that that, that that there's access because no private lakes are obviously going to be put on this list. And then there's some public lakes that can be dangerous. And then um, and then we also um, add to the the criteria um, kind of the scenery because we. <laughs> Yeah, there might be a fantastic pond in the middle of Houston, Texas, and there's nothing but beer cans and whatever floating on top of it. And so we also don't want to send people there. So, uh, yeah, so there the added criteria are accessibility and kind of scenery. And it's hard to find an ugly place to fish, but they're, they are out there, <laughs> and we want to try to 
uh, kind of avoid sending people to those places. Well, and I suspect if you asked a longtime bass fisherman here in northern New York or California or Alabama or Texas, they would all have this one special place that they think is the best. But this is, you know, I don't want to say lowest common denominator because that's that's probably not fair either. But you know, you're not you're not trying to like overload the secret place that that the longtime fisherman has been going, you know, for 20 years and uh, can only can only really handle three or four people in it at once. Yeah, that is right. And um, and there is kind of a size minimum too. So we don't want uh, we don't want to bombard a tiny, tiny fishery. Although we have some really small ones on the on the list. It's smaller than ever this year, but those are some kayak only and, and bank fishing only scenarios because not every you know, we have a half a million readers of Bassmaster and not all of them have a boat. Uh, some of them just have a kayak, and we want to make sure that they are served as well. So there are bank fishing opportunities and kayak-only fisheries out there that are tremendous. So we wanted to make sure that those folks know that you know this list is not just for them. So back to the St. Lawrence River for a minute. Um, how does the length of the fishing season uh, factor into your calculations? Because obviously there there are folks who have been out for weeks or months in a place like, uh, you know, say the Toledo Bend Reservoir and the Texas-Louisiana border, while we're still canceling school and shoveling snow up here in <laughs> in northern New York? Well, the, the, the length of season does not really um, measure into our calculations at all. We know that, that some fisheries have seasons. Honestly, the fact that y'all have seasons up there pro- are probably one of the reasons that these fisheries are so um, so very, very amazing. You know, you look at at some of the lakes like Gunnersville that are always on the on this list, and some of the Toledo Bend, R- Rayburn, and you know some Florida fisheries, they're never closed. That's that's all, and they get um, tremendous pressure because of it. You know, y'all have the opportunity to duck in when that when everything freezes over in the ice, but that does give the bass an opportunity to uh, relax and. Um, and not have a hook, uh, you know, dangling from its face 24-7 because fishing pressure is a real thing and it does affect the catchability of these bass. So for y'all to give these fish a break, I think it's, um, I think it, it makes them a more catchable, but it also keeps them quite healthy uh, during a time when they could, they could, um, you know, get damaged or be hurt and, and really rough weather. So I think that um, when we look at, when we look at the rankings and, and and the northern fisheries that have these seasons for bass, it's not something that we, you know, there's a plus sign behind it or negative sign behind it. It's just all right. The end result is that uh, it makes these fisheries better seemingly. So that's really the only calculation it goes into is the end result. Now, um, Lake Champlain is also on this list, and there's uh, there's an Elite Series event that's happened there the last uh, couple of years, and is coming up this year as well. What are the draws that you found, uh, you know, on the on the New York Vermont border? Well, I will tell you something, you know, and I was just up there. Um, I guess this is about I get, uh, last this past spring, and it was tremendous, man. I t- what is so amazing about Champlain? is that you have an incredible smallmouth fishery alongside an incredible largemouth fishery. So you can kind of pick your poison when it comes to the style of fishing that you want. You're not only, you know, throwing finesse baits in deep, clear water, but you can go fish for those big, you know, the big green fish in shallow, weedy backwaters or coves or whatever. 
Uh, and then if you get tired of that, well, you pop out on the on a ledge and, and go catch, uh, you know, giant smallmouth too. And what I'd noticed about Champlain when I fished it this last time versus when I fished it prior was probably 10 years ago is that the uh, smallmouth have grown up. You know, used to you could go there and catch plenty of smallmouth, but they'd all be two, two and a half pounds. I bet I caught four over four and a half pounds the last time I went. So that was that really impressed me. Uh, the largemouth were still there, and they're still very healthy. So it's kind of a, you know, for a Champlain to me, it's kind of a coin flip uh, when it comes down to one, if you want to go win a tournament on that lake, you can probably do it with smallmouth, or you can go do it with largemouth if you get in the right spot. So that's a really special thing about that place is that the quality of both types of bass are just so good. I imagine makes it that much more complicated for uh, for the elite series fishermen who have to come up with a strategy when they get there. Yeah, you know, well, it'll be interesting, very interesting to watch because you you have your your typical, you know, some of these pros love fishing for smallmouth and are very very good at it. Some of them are amazing at catching largemouth um, and not so much at smallmouth. So at Champlain, uh, you're going to get to see guys fish to their strengths. My guess is. Uh, because it's gonna, I don't, I, or maybe both, you know, because you maybe want uh, you can catch two four pound largemouth and three four pounds. I don't know. It's gonna be cool to watch. But watching these, seeing these guys, the best fishermen on the planet, fish to their strengths uh, in a place as as amazing as Champlain is gonna be fun to watch. Well, and and you talked about scenery, and it's tough to beat a place where you can see the Adirondacks on one side and the Green Mountains on the other and have this amazing lake in between. Man, that place is so pretty, it ought to be illegal. I'm, I, I just, I know at one point I just sat down and quit fishing just, and just stared at, at Champlain. And then, and then, of course, you have the monster thing, and I, and I, and I swore I wasn't going to tell my elite series, and I won't tell the name, but we did go uh live scan some really deep areas but just to make sure <laughs> that, that the monster wasn't near but you know the the legend the lore the the beauty of that place is the fishing that one's just man it's hard that needs to be on everybody's bucket list as far as i'm concerned well so i have to ask there there are a hundred lakes on this list how many of them do you think you have fished uh <clears throat> not enough <laughs> be my answer i'm guessing uh, that are on this list, uh, all from all 100, I, I maybe have fished 40. I, you, you get on, when we first started doing it, I would take wild swings, and I'd go, I, this year I'm going to take a California swing, and I'd go out there and I'd fish Delta and Clear Lake and Berryessa and knock three off the list and thought I did something. But you know, I mean, there's, you know, they got nine lakes on the on the list. I didn't even put a dent in it when I went to, the, to that state, so... It's fun, and and um, you know, there's a couple more after because we have we have beyond myself, we have three other riders that contribute to this list that live in these regions that they put together, and they they come up with new lakes all the time, and some fall off this list, uh, and there's a couple of new ones um, that I think I'm gonna have to poke around and and maybe put on my list for next year. To answer your question, uh, not nearly enough. <laughs> well, I was going to ask whether whether some of this is uh, is still an eye opener. I don't know how long you've been editing, but uh, but certainly you've been around the you've been around the sport for a long time. There must be some that are still popping up that that you were not aware of. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, some of the ones on because I write in the southeast region uh, since I live in the southeast, and there probably there were three on there that I found this year that had not not that had never made the rankings. I've, I've been with the magazine for t- almost 25 years now. So 
and we started this thing um oh gosh i guess 11 12 years ago um so you know the very first lake to to, to be ranked number one is lake falcon and it was, you know, guys were catching 30 pounds on an umbrella rig in one cast. You know, I mean, it was just, and at that time you're thinking, oh my gosh, well, this is, maybe this is a bad idea. No one is, there's not a lake that's ever going to be able to beat Falcon. <laughs> and then two years ago, Falcon didn't even make the list. You know, you, you have drought, you have um, overfishing, you have flood conditions, you have, you know, there's fish kills because of lake turnover poor management there's just so many things that can affect a fishery um that i have over the years uh, past decade plus i've been shocked at how much this list changes and turns over so yeah every year i'm I'm excited to see what the guys in the other regions come up with i'm always excited to find new new lakes um that that uh i get to add to the southeast region and uh and you know the uh, florida Man, there are some amazing things happening in Florida right now, as there are in Texas. So we're actually about to head down to a sport fishing show. And I, I have a couple of those <laughs> lakes that I haven't fished yet that I'm going to check off in the in the Sunshine State. But, yeah, there's always some surprises, man. It's it's uh, pretty amazing. And so where are we talking to you from? Where where do you live? Uh, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Yeah, the world world headquarters of BASS. Very nice. Uh, happy to be done with this uh, with this issue, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> of all the issues I do, I hate this one the most. It is, well, for two two reasons. Hey, it's a lot of work, and you know, I'm, I'd rather be fishing than working. That's uh, kind of how that goes. But then, you know, you also can't make anybody happy because you you, ha- you put a you you do your best to get the list right, and the guys whose home lake is on that list, they get mad. They're like, ah, oh, I didn't want you to tell anybody about Burton Mullet Lake in Michigan. Ah, oh, you ruined it forever, and then. And then the guys whose favorite lake isn't on there get mad. They're like, you don't know anything. Lake Mitchell in Alabama is the best spotted bass fishing lake, you dummy. So, you know, it's never, you never make anybody happy. But I think all the people in the middle, it's that half a million readers in the middle that we're trying to, that's our sweet spot that we're trying to help out. So, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's a love-hate relationship with this thing. I love what, I love the the conversation that it creates. And I hopefully... Um, the results that it gives uh, the folks who don't have a whole lot of time to go fishing let's, points them in the right direction. That's the part that I love about it. Well, I enjoyed it for sure, and uh, and I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Oh, man, it's been my pleasure. I sure appreciate your interest in this, and I hope that uh, that you get to get out on the water sometime <laughs> soon and, and test, test out the list for yourself. James Hall, editor-in-chief of Bassmaster Magazine, talking with us about the magazine's current issue, which places the St. Lawrence River as the number two bass fishing site in the country. Down from number one last year, but still pretty impressive. And hey, it was number one in the Northeast, and Lake Champlain was number five. You'll find a link to the whole shebang at ncpr.org slash northwards. That brings us to the end of this edition of the show. We get additional support for Northwards from the Glengarry Highland Games, August 4th and 5th in Maxville, Ontario. With over 50 pipe bands, 200 Highland dancers, heavyweights, and all things Scottish, glengarryhighlandgames.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to our podcast and get an episode delivered to you every Friday from the comfort of your phone or your computer or your smart speaker. Find it at ncpr.org northwards. Digital oversight of the show comes from Ethan Shanty and Bill Hanel. Caitlin Kelly does our social media. Doyle Dean shoots video. And I'm Mitch Tyke, your humble host and producer. Thanks for listening. Here and Now is next on NCPR.